0: Hello everyone and welcome to J.G. Ministries Bible Study where we study God's Word. Today we are going to unpack Chapter 1 of the Book of Mark. Now last time we started to scratch the surface as we took a look at an introduction to the Gospel of Mark. So go ahead and turn to Chapter 1, Verse 1 in your Bibles and let's get into it. Chapter 1 is going to give us the John the Baptist. Preparation for the coming Messiah. And verse 1 begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, "'There comes one after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose.' i indeed baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the holy spirit let's take a moment here and go back to verses <clears throat> one through eight now this story is told in all four gospels matthew mark luke and john now mark starts his book with a quotation from the old testament now he skips Jesus' birth and he launches immediately into a crowded memoir of Jesus' public life. Now, the first verse seems to be a title. It may refer to the entire gospel or only to the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, in the book of Acts, chapter 122, it says, Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he, which is Jesus, was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The starting point of the good news is stated to be from John's baptism. Mark may have this in mind here. Now, another possibility, however, is that by using beginning, Mark is imitating Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, where it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and maybe he wants his readers to realize that his book is a new beginning in which God reveals the good news of Jesus Christ now taken in this way the first verse is not only a title for the entire book but it's a claim to its divine origin now the word gospel comes from the Old English God spell, which is good news. And it translates accurately, the Greek of Euganglian. And in the New Testament, the good news is that God has provided salvation for everyone through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for Mark to convey this good news, he has created a new literary genre, a gospel. And this gospel is about Jesus Christ. And Mark intends to proclaim the gospel already known and experienced by the Roman believers by rooting it in the events of Jesus' life. There are indications that they had lost hold of these historical roots. And Jesus is actually the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation, or salvation of the Lord, or even the Lord saves. Now this name was revealed by an angel to Joseph before Jesus was born, and describes his mission of being the Savior. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. And the last phrase, the Son of God, is an important theme in Mark's gospel. And once again, we do know that Mark's theme is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because his purpose is to emphasize the servant role of Jesus. He begins, not like with Matthew, with a genealogy, but with a public ministry of the Savior. And this was announced by John the Baptist, who... was the herald of this good news now both Malachi and Isaiah as we continue with verses 2 and 3 predicted that a messenger would precede the Messiah who would call the people to be morally and spiritually prepared for his coming John the Baptist fulfilled these prophecies he was the messenger the voice of one crying in the wilderness and mark cites the old testament to show that any true understanding of the ministry of jesus must be firmly grounded there it is written underscores a strong belief in the unchanging authority of the scriptures So we have the quotations that follow from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Let's take a quick look at those with Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah 40 chapter uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says, "The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God." So Mark brings together these Old Testament texts in such a striking way. He cites God's promise of a messenger to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared through the wilderness. To the promised land. Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3, looks forward to the coming of another messenger in the desert who will go before the people of God in a second exodus to prepare for the revelation of God's salvation in Christ. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, as we move on to verse 4, his message was that the people should repent, which means they should change their minds and forsake their sins in order to receive the remission of sins. Otherwise, they would be in no position to receive the Lord. Only holy people are able to appreciate the Holy Son of God. Now, since Mark wants to highlight the saving facts of Jesus and their theological meaning for the roman church he does not include a nativity narrative he immediately begins with the ministry of john the baptist who is the forerunner of the messiah and this is precisely where peter begins in his proclamation of the gospel that we find in the book of acts chapter 10 verse 37 the word you know which was proclaimed throughout all judea and began from galilee after the baptism which john preached we find that in the book of acts now john appeared suddenly baptizing in the desert region these are the arid regions that were west or are the west of the dead sea and this general area was the abode of the quorum sect though john likely came in contact with these people, it does not appear as if they exerted much influence on him, at least not as in regards to his baptismal practices or even his great emphasis on ethical conduct and in the uh, eschatological judgment. Now, John preached baptism as an indication that repentance either had already occurred or accompanied it. And the end result is the forgiveness of sins. Now, God's direct response to true repentance is, of course, forgiveness. When his hearers did repent, as we take a look at verse 5, John baptized them as an outward expression of their about-face turnaround, if you will, from their sin life to now their repentance. Baptism separated them publicly from the mass of the nation of Israel who had forsaken the Lord, it united them with a remnant who were ready to receive the Christ. Now, it might seem from verse 5 that the response to John's preaching was universal. This this is not the case. There may have been an initial burst of enthusiasm with multitudes surging out to the desert to hear this fiery preacher but the majority didn't genuinely confess and forsake their sins and this will be seen as the narrative advances further along here now john's preaching did cause great excitement for many people kept going out to see him Although there is an element of hyperbole in Mark's report, it nevertheless implies that John's preaching aroused much interest and created a great stir. Now, Jerusalem is only, it's at least 20 miles from the Jordan River. It's about 4,000 feet above it. So it was hard walking to go down this rugged Judean hill to the Jordan, and it was even harder to come back up it. John preached the coming of the Messiah. And this, of course, raised popular excitement to a feverish pitch. So what kind of a man was John? Well, let's take a look at verse 6. There is some information there that lets us know what he was like. Now, today he would be called a fanatic, might even be called an ascetic. His home was the desert. His clothing, like Elijah's, was the coarsest and the simplest. Nothing fancy to it. His food was just efficient to main life and strength. Uh, He was far from and scarcely luxurious. He was a man who subordinated all these things to the glorious task of making Christ known. Now, perhaps he could have been rich, but he chose to be poor. He, He thus became a fitting herald Of him who had nowhere to lay his head. And of course I'm referring to Jesus Christ. We learn that simplicity should characterize all who are servants of the Lord. And John is described as a typical holy man of the Near East. His clothing was of course because it was woven of camel's hair. And it was held in place by a leather belt that was around his waist. Now, his food was, as we mentioned, just enough to sustain life and strength. It was consisting of locusts and wild honey, as the scriptures tell us. But in verse 7, we go on to see that his message was the superiority of the Lord Jesus. He said that Jesus was greater in power, personal excellence, and in ministry. And John did not even consider himself worthy enough to loosen the Savior's sandal straps, which would have been a menial duty of any slave to do. But John didn't feel he was even good enough to do that. Now, this spirit-filled preaching always exalts the Lord Jesus, and it always dethrones oneself. Now, John's baptism was with water, as we see in verse 8. It was an external symbol, but produced no change in a person's life. Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. This baptism would produce a great inflow of spiritual power. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8 here. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now also it would incorporate all believers into the church, the body of Christ, as we take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So in Mark's account, John's message is brief, focusing on the coming of the Mighty One who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So great is this Mighty One that again, John does not consider himself worthy to untie his sandals for him. He contrasts his baptism with that of the coming one. His baptism is with water, while that of the coming one will be a Holy Spirit baptism. John, again, emphasizes the superiority of the ministry of the coming one to his own ministry. John's prophecy was fulfilled in a dramatic way at Pentecost. Now, let's move on a little further here. And let's take a look of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. We're going to take a look at verses 9 through 11 here. So, turn with me back to our scriptures as we proceed with verse 9 it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and immediately coming up from the water he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased now as we take a look at verse 9 <coughs> We have the so-called 30 silent years in Nazareth, which are now at an end. The Lord Jesus was ready to enter upon his public ministry. But before he could do that, he had to travel the 60-odd miles from Nazareth to the Jordan, which was near Jericho. Because there he was baptized by John, John the Baptist, In his case, of course, in Jesus' case, there was no repentance because there was no sins to confess. Jesus was a perfect man. Baptism for the Lord was a symbolic action, picturing his eventual baptism into death at Calvary and his rising from the dead. So at the very outset of his public ministry, there was this vivid foreshadowing of a cross and of an empty tomb now jesus probably began his public ministry about ad 27 when he was approximately 30 years old two events however immediately preceded the beginning of his ministry his baptism by john the baptist and his temptation by the devil satan himself The baptism of Jesus by John must have been a problem to the early church. Why did Jesus submit himself to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Now, Matthew recounts John's reluctance to baptize Jesus. And in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus' reply to that reluctance. As he says, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to identify himself with sinful humanity at the very outset of his ministry. And this he did by submitting to baptism. Now, as soon as he came up from the water, as we proceed with verses 10 and 11, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then we hear the voice of God the Father, who acknowledges Jesus as his beloved Son. Now Mark suggests, or seems to suggest, that only Jesus saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending, though he may have been so focusing on Jesus' experience that he says nothing of John's. But whatever else the descent of the Spirit on Jesus meant, it clearly indicated his anointing for ministry. And Jesus himself claimed this anointing in the synagogue at Nazareth when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. There never was a time in the life of Jesus when he was not filled with the Holy Spirit. But now the Holy Spirit came upon him, anointing him for service and enduing him with power. It was a special ministry of the Spirit, preparatory to the three years of service that lies ahead of him the power of the holy spirit is indispensable a person can be educated they can be talented they can be fluent in their ways yet without that mysterious quality of the holy spirit which we call unction his service is lifeless and it's ineffective so the basic question is have i had an experience of the holy spirit that's empowering me for the service of the lord you think about that. Now, as we continue, we see God's response fuses the concept of the Masonic king of the coronation. Let's take a look at Psalms chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that of the Lord's servant of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, where it says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. The main emphasis, however, is on this unique sonship of Jesus. Now Mark confesses Jesus as the Son of God at the very outset of his gospel. Now here God confesses Jesus as his Son and witnesses to his approval of his Son. He knows the unique mission that he has given to his son. And he states, with confidence in him. So now let's start taking a look here where we have Satan tempting Jesus. I'm just going to look at two verses for right now, 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, immediately the Spirit drove him, and drove him as Jesus, into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Now, the servant of God, Jesus Christ himself, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. The Spirit of God led Jesus to this rendezvous, if you will, not to see if Jesus would sin, but to prove that Jesus could not sin. If Jesus could have sinned as a man on earth, then what assurance would we have that he cannot now sin as a man in heaven? So from his baptism, Jesus goes at once, which is a characteristic of Mark's writing, to his temptation, the humbling of Jesus by his identification with the failure and the sin of humankind at the baptism is continued by his subjection to the onslaughts of Satan. Holy, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who came on Jesus at his baptism is now driving him out into the desert. It has been said too that sometimes through our victories that's when Satan comes with to tempt you the most. Now, Mark's account of the temptation is brief, recording no specific temptations, and he doesn't record the victories over Satan. This emphasizes that Jesus' entire ministry was just one continuous encounter with Satan, and it wasn't limited to just a few temptations in his desert. Now, indeed, his gospel he, or in his gospel he vividly describes this continuing conflict and the 40 days recalls many things, it recalls the experience of Moses that we saw in Exodus chapter 24 verse 18 and in Elijah First Kings chapter 19 verse 8 and verse 15 in the desert but only Mark mentions the wild animals a touch that heightens the fierceness of jesus's entire experience in the desert as he's being tempted let's take a quick look at exodus chapter 24 verse 18 that i've mentioned so moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain and moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights first king chapter uh, 19 verse 8 says so he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Again in First Kings chapter 19, but this time verse 15, then the Lord said to him, "Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. Now why does Mark say that he was with the wild beasts, he being Jesus? Were these animals energized? if you will, by Satan to try and seek out and destroy Christ? Were they docile in the presence of the Creator? We can only ask these questions. The Bible does not give us answers to them. But we do know that the angels ministered to Jesus at the end of his 40 days during this temptation. Because during this temptation, he fasted. He didn't eat anything. And as we look in the other Gospels, we find out why that was significant because Satan tempts him to turn stones to bread. But continuing here, we have our testings which are inevitable for the believer. The closer that one follows the Lord, the more intense they will be. Because, see, Satan doesn't waste his Gunpowder, if you will, on just nominal Christians. He opens up his big guns on those who are winning territory for Christ in this spiritual warfare. Now, keep in mind, I want you to understand this. It's not a sin to be tempted. In our own strength, we cannot resist, but the indwelling Holy Spirit is the believer's power to subdue dark passions it's what we do when we're tested we need to follow the example of Jesus Christ when tempted we turn to him for our strength so that we don't give in to those temptations that's the key now as we continue on I want to take a look here at the early Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ Jesus's Galilean ministry occupies about one-half of Mark Mark skips about a year between verse 13 and and verse 14 which is that time between Jesus' temptation and the beginning of his Galilean ministry now some of the events of that year are described in the book of John chapter 1 verse 19 which says now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you Now, John chapter 4, verse 54, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, first, the disciples after Jesus' baptism by John, we have the first disciples. Or This is what we're going to see here. We're going to see the first disciples. We're going to see that water is turned into wine at a wedding at Cana mark is going to take us through the cleansing of the temple he's going to show us a conversation with nicodemus we're going to see preaching in the lower jordan region for approximately eight months in the book of mark we're going to see convert a conversation with a samaritan woman we'll also see the healing of the son of the royal official from cana And lastly, we're going to take a look at the rejection at Nazareth. Now, Jesus had been preaching in the lower Jordan region, but growing hostility of Pharisees and Herod's imprisonment of John made it look very dangerous. But having work to do before his death, Jesus thought best to get farther away from Jerusalem. So let's take a look here as we read verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, and this is John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus now begins his Galilean ministry, the opening of his public ministry, is related to that of John the Baptist. Not until after John was put in prison and perhaps put to death did Jesus begin his ministry. We don't know for sure. But John, the forerunner, had completed his God-appointed task. Now Mark may be hinting that just as John's ministry ended in death, so will the ministry of Jesus Christ. The content of Jesus' preaching is the good news of God. The good news is both from God and it's about God. The gospel is the very best news ever to come to the hearing of humankind because it contains the message of forgiveness, restoration, and a new life in Christ Jesus. Jesus witnesses to God's actions for our salvation by saying the time has come. This is the decisive time for God's action. With the coming of Jesus, God was doing something special. Now, the concept of the kingdom of God is basic to the teachings of Jesus. It relates directly to the kingship of God that's described in the Old Testament. The Lord's kingship is both a present reality, God exercising his authority now, And it's a future hope where God will reign in the end when he finally puts down all the opposition to his reign. The same tension between the kingdom of God as both present and future exists in the teaching of Jesus. And here Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is near. In Jesus' actions, God's rule has invaded this present world. But in other sayings, the kingdom is spoken of as still future. Now, the solution to the dilemma of both a present and a future kingdom is not to be found in rejecting one or the other, but in recognizing that both are true. The kingdom is present now, but there will be a full manifestation of it in the future. Now, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom is emphasized as having drawn near in the person of Jesus. Mark chapter 1:15 says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The only appropriate response is repentance and faith. There is an urgency about the nearness of God's kingdom. Since it ushers in the end, it speaks of judgment. Now, Mark skips over the Lord's Judean ministry to begin this great Galilean ministry, which is a period of about one year and nine months. But he deals briefly with the latter part of the Purine ministry before moving on to the last week in Jerusalem. So Jesus comes to Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. His specific message was, number one, the time, has, or the time was fulfilled according to the prophetic timetable. A date had been fixed for the public appearing of the king, and it's now arrived. Secondly, the kingdom of God was at hand. The king was present. He was making a bona fide offer of the kingdom of God, or to the kingdom, to the nation of Israel. The kingdom was at hand. It was here in the sense that the king had appeared on the scene. The king is here, okay? And thirdly and lastly, men were called on to repent and to believe in the gospel in order to be eligible to enter the kingdom. They had to do an about face regarding their sins. And they had to believe the good news concerning the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to stop right there for today next time we're going to take a look of jesus starting to gather in his disciples if you will the calling of the four fishermen that will be his part of his disciples so until next time god bless you and keep living christian strong